Welcome to the Redeemer Central podcast. Redeemer Central is a church community in Belfast seeking to practice the way of Jesus and work for the peace and good of our city. For more information, please visit RedeemerCentral.com. Practicing the way. I'm loving this series. If you're new this morning, we've been in this, we've got this kind of ambition to work through nine different practices of the way of Jesus, ways that we can be formed in the way of Jesus. Left to our own devices, we won't change, but given over to this way of Jesus that we believe is the way, uh, we believe that we can become more like him and actually enter into life. We're in a four-parter on prayer, so the current practice is prayer, and I'm going to finish that off today. Um, Dan Rather, the journalist, uh, asked Mother Teresa, uh, when you pray to God, what do you say? And she answered, I don't say anything, I listen. That's all she said, and the interview kind of went on and ended. And after the interview, he kind of, there was an awkward moment where he was kind of thrown a little bit, and he kind of turned to Mother Teresa with a follow-up question and asked, okay, when you pray to God, um, what does he say to you? Um, She's quiet for a minute, and then she answered, he doesn't say anything, he listens. Um... There was a very awkward moment again, and she clarifies, and if you don't understand that, I can't explain it to you. Um, And she's really referring there to a dimension of prayer um, that goes beyond words, um, to simple, loving presence. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Over the last three weeks, myself, Steph, and John have been looking at these three different stages of prayer, talking to God, talking with God. And listening to God. And today the kind of the, the stage is being with God. We're going to look at being with God. And stages are not something that we move beyond. They're not like we mature beyond stage one and talking to God and we get this talk. It's all up for grabs. Um, a little bit like you might learn a sport if you're a footballer. You don't kind of you begin with learning how to dribble, but you don't just stay there. You just add and add and add to your repertoire. And so you get the point. But the further we progress in prayer and our life with God, the more we grow to love Him and desire to talk with Him and, yes, listen to Him, but even more to be in love with Him. And as a general rule, relationships, whether it's with, with God or anyone else, you can gauge the level of intimacy in a relationship by how comfortable you are being together in silence. And early on in relationships, there's a lot of words and a lot of activity. I don't know if that's been your, your experience, and that's beautiful and so good. But as you grow in a relationship, you continue to do all of that, but you're also so at ease with one another that you just desire to spend time in each other's presence. Um, all good? Bring it closer, I'm being told. All human analogies. Can you hear me Okay. Yeah, good. All human analogies fall short, but in in marriage particularly, there is a level of intimacy that is literally the intermingling of of persons at the deepest level, an intimacy that is wordless, uh, yet deeply loving, that the mystics have long said is 
is ultimately a picture of our union with, with God. Um, and when applied to prayer, this level of wordless communication has often been called contemplation. You might have heard of contemplative prayer. Contemplative prayer means different things to different people at different times in history. But I'm going to talk about three dimensions to contemplative prayer this morning. Hopefully the slides will come up looking, yielding, and resting. And I'm going to just share a short word on each. The first is looking. And I'd love to, you to turn to your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 3. If you have them, it will be up on the screen. Um, the label contemplative prayer is based on language found in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, where in verse 18 he writes this, We all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. You might have seen the word in there, we with unveiled faces, the imagery perhaps of a bride and intimacy with a husband, perhaps uh, contemplate, um, the word is ketotrizo in Greek, and it means to gaze at or to direct the inner gaze of the heart at. Um, another word for, or I guess another name for contemplative prayer is beholding prayer, um, because it is, in fact, we're, we're beholding, and uh, we're looking at the Lord's glory, if you want to use Paul's language and glory in the New Testament. It doesn't mean, uh, you know that thing that people say when they kind of win an award, glory to God, like give God the fame, give God the celebrity status. No, we're, we're not talking about the New Testament understanding of glory is God's very beauty, his very presence that we gaze upon, we behold his beauty, his, his presence, um, much like the, the cloud over Mount Sinai or in the tabernacle to contemplate God's glory is to look at his goodness and his beauty and his love pouring out towards you, which is the essence of our faith. Like the end game, if there is one, is that. To behold the glory of God and to find his love being poured out into us. A.W. Tozer said this, faith is not a once done act, but a continuous gaze of the heart at the triune God. Believing then is directing the heart's attention to Jesus. It is lifting the mind to behold the Lamb of God and never ceasing that beholding for the rest of our lives. At first, this might be difficult, but it becomes easier as we look steadily at his wondrous person, quietly and without strain. Of course, this raises the question, how do we look at a God who is invisible? You know, obviously even Jesus said no one has seen God. Bonaventure, the medieval intellectual monk, said that we as human beings have three eyes, the eye of the body by which we can see the world around us, the eye of the mind by which we can see the world within us, ideas and concepts, and the eye of the heart by which we see God. I love the name of this guy, St. Theophan the Recluse, put it this way. To pray is to descend with the mind into the heart and to stand before the face of the Lord, ever-present, all-seeing within you. St. John of the Cross said, in this kind of prayer, we remain in loving attention on God. This is the most basic aspect of contemplation, loving attention on, on the Father. 
on his love and compassion and good will coming to us in Christ by the Spirit. And secondly, yielding to his love, there is a type of prayer where you are laboring with God to change what is. Not dissimilar to the prayer we prayed at the start about this building. Lord, give us this building. That kind of, you're wrestling and you're laboring with something in your life that you'd like to see change, petition and inter intercession, and it's good and it's necessary and it's Christ-like and it comes right in the Our Father as Jesus taught. But in the Our Father, Jesus taught, Father, let this cup pass from me. He's interceding, let this cup, cup pass from me. He's trying to change the circumstances of his life, but in the end, he prays, not my will but yours be done. And there is a yielding. Being with God begins with looking at God, but then it moves towards a yielding, which is like a letting go of outcomes, like a surrender of our will to say what is, is, an acceptance of what is. We do intercede for change, but we also, in the presence of God, come before him and surrender it all to him and let go. And that acceptance can be so deeply life-giving. Robert Mullen, who's a, or, sorry, Robert Mulholland, who's a uh, New Testament theologian, said this, the deep inner posture of a joyful release of our life and being in God, in, in absolute, to God in absolute trust, without demands, without conditions, without reservation, neither a passive re resignation nor a fatalistic acquiescence to whatever comes. It is rather a consistent posture of actively turning our whole being to God so that God's presence, purpose, and power can be released through our lives into all situations. It's, it's God, here am I, I'm yours. That's the kind of prayer it is. It's it's, it's not an act of submission, but it is a surrender to the love of God. Walter Hilton called contemplation love on fire with devotion. So looking at God, yielding to God, and then finally resting in God. This is what it means to be with God. This is what it means to practice contemplation. Finally, resting in God's love whether it's petition or intercession, asking, praying feels like work, yeah? Sometimes prayer is difficult because it feels like work. It feels exhausting. We're co-laboring with God to bring his kingdom to be birthed in our world. And for that reason, Orthodox Jews forbid all intercessory prayer on the Sabbath because it's work. Contemplative prayer feels less like work and more like rest, like a portable Sabbath, we might think. And why does it feel very different? It's less something we do and more something God does in us. It is ultimately just resting in his love. That's mostly what prayer is, the medium by which we experience the love of Christ. I want to read Paul's prayer in Ephesians, which captures this. Ephesians 3, 16 to 19 says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being 
so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That to know the love of God, it surpasses the kind of the the rationalizing part of our brain. You can't explain this, but I know that God loves us in Christ and that we're filled with that knowledge that cannot make sense rationally, but we know it in the deep parts of us. This type of prayer is how we are filled to the measure of all the fullness of God, to use Paul's language. Uh, What the saints have uh, have long called his loving light or as St. Teresa of Avila said, this type of prayer is silent love. Like it's beautiful, beautiful reflections here on what prayer is. That it's not work, it is resting in the love of God. St. Augustine said this true whole prayer is nothing but love. And in the modern world where so many of us live in, a, I guess, some, a chronic state of fatigue from our performance-oriented culture and hitting our targets, This is exactly what we need, this type of prayer, resting in and receiving the gift of love, receiving our identity as sons and daughters of our Father God and offering our love back in worship. And it comes as no surprise that contemplative prayer is at the heart of spiritual formation, that process I've been talking about which we become more like Christ the way we are formed, everything we do is forming us, including what we're doing right now. It's forming us being in this building with other believers. It's forming us breaking bread and taking wine forms us, singing songs and praying prayers and hearing. It forms us. Paul's letter in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 says this, as we contemplate the Lord's glory, we are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That word transformed, metamorphosis, it means like, like the kind of transformation of a caterpillar to a butterfly. Like, it's a beautiful image, a beautiful word, picture of the kind of change that is possible. It is Christian to believe in change. Things can change. If that's the only thing you remember from today, remember that. Things can change. It is deeply Christian to believe this. And people can change. We can be changed. The people that we love can be changed. And we believe this process of being together with believers and living the way of Jesus and practicing the practices can form us to be more like Christ. The core of that change is contemplation. The core way that you will change is by looking at God. It's by kind of getting our heads around this idea. The Singaporean writer, Hui Hui Tan, I hope I've pronounced that right, says, you are what your mind looks at. You are what you contemplate. Think about it. People who spend hours every day watching angry political news tend to be angry, political, radicalized by ideology kinds of people. 
if you spend our hours, and we've all done this, scrolling Instagram or TikTok, we will become more anxious. It's been proved. People who spend hours every day watching TV, they become like that which they watch, or potentially even addicted. We become like the thing we gaze upon, whether it's the TV or the Trinity. There you go. Whether it's, we are formed no matter what we do. The choice is how are we going to be formed. And to be in community with one another and give our lives to the way of Jesus, we're making a decision to say, I need to be changed and I'm giving my change to Jesus because without help, I will not change in the way I want to change. We become like that which we gaze upon. Therefore, the yellow line down the middle of the pathway is to become like Jesus by looking at Jesus, which is why we here in Redeemer are a Jesus-centered community. That is obvious as a church. We really believe everything hinges upon Jesus. So when I say contemplate God today, I mean look at God in the face of Christ. Read the stories of Christ. Come to know Christ. And one way we can do that is by reading scripture, as I've said, but another is through prayer, is by this looking with this, this spiritual eyes, the eyes of the heart upon Jesus. This is how God designed our brains to grow and develop. The brain is full of mirror neurons that cause us to take on the properties of whoever or whatever we look at. When someone smiles, what do you do? You smile back. If someone glares at you, um, it's like that you will glare back or perhaps flinch. The secular neuroscientist, Dr. Andrew Newberg, in his book, How God Changes Your Brain, go and purchase that. If you contemplate God long enough, something surprising happens in the brain. Neural functioning begins to change. We have a nervous system that actively participates in its own neural construction, something we do not see in other animal brains. That's a fancy way of saying that our brain is malleable, and when we pray, our very brain is rewired. There's a part of our brain called the anterior cingulate. This is the bit that sits between the limbic system and the prefrontal cortex, and when stimulated, it decreases our impulses of anger and fear, and it increases our feelings of compassion. Very simply, when we look upon, when we contemplate the love of God coming towards us, it's rewiring us. It's rewiring our brains. We, it shows up on a brain scan. It's, it's a, quite remarkable, really. Newberg argues it has, well, hold on. I suppose he's saying here, it makes us more loving and compassionate people, but the, the problem is the opposite's also true. Because if your view of God is of an angry, authoritarian tyrant, that also changes your brain. And Newberg argues it has a similar effect to PTSD. Changes your brain to become more fearful and more aggressive. The Anglican Bishop William Temple once observed that if people have a wrong view of God, the more religious they become, the worse they become. It's why it is so incredibly important to think Christianly or Christianly about God. Another way that I would say that is that theology really matters. Bad theology kills. What you think about when you think about God really matters. It's kind of why we do take seriously here a 
attempting the best that we can with God's grace to teach and expound what is in the Holy Scriptures because it is so important what we believe. And I'm gonna, we're going to be going into that in quite a bit of, hopeful, a bit of detail in the, the learning group Evolving Faith coming up that I'm leading. There's a few spaces left on that if you're interested. Because what we think of when we think of God really does shape and it wires our brain. But if we contemplate God as love, which is how we believe Christ has come to reveal God, then we ourselves become more loving. Psalm 34, those who look to him are radiant. As we look at God's beauty, we become more beautiful. Have you been around those kinds of people? They're like light. They're like radiant. They're a gift. This is the gift of contemplative prayer. It is the, the secret that won't be told on Joe Rogan or whatever podcast you listen to. Prayer. Prayer. Perhaps prayer is the point of it all. And I'm really convicted when I say it because it's often a struggle. It often feels like work. But there's an invitation here to say it is actually as simple as sitting with Jesus. No words. And inviting his love to come and be poured out upon us. It feels like, how do we do that when we've got the, our lives to live? This is a, a life for monks, nuns, and introverts. Theof in the recluse, etc., etc. Anyone can, and I would argue, practice contemplative prayer. But that's not to say it's easy, it is difficult, and I want to give you three major challenges to being able to do this that you'll be most aware of. We all are. Distraction, hurry, and fear. Distraction, number one. The moment you begin to sit, to do that, to attempt that, if you go down tonight on your knees, light a candle, the first thing that's going to happen is you're going to be distracted. You're going to go, I'm going to do this. And the brain will start to jump all over the place. I need to pick this thing up tomorrow. I've got to go and do that shopping. I can't believe they said this to me. That does not mean that you're bad at prayer. It just means that you're human. That you have a mind and that the mind is distractible. It's all that that means. It's normal and it's a natural part of the brain's inner workings. And while it can be calmed and quieted over time with dedicated practice, distraction never goes away. We're living with it every day. The key to quieting distractions is just not to, not to have a second thought. As simple as that may be, it's hard to practice. Just don't give the thought a second thought. Let it pass by and bring your mind back to God. I love what Thomas Keating says about this. And if there is a forefather of contemplative prayer in the 20th century, it is Thomas Keating. Open mind open heart was his seminal work on centering prayer, which is this kind of prayer. And he writes about it and he says, if your mind gets distracted a thousand times in 10 minutes of prayer, it's just a thousand chances to come back to God. It is beautiful. That's all that that is. Secondly, hurry. I love Dallas Willard is brilliant on this. And he says this, and I'm very convicted by it. To be with God, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. There's actually a book been written kind of about that, I think, by John Mark Homer. But 
you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And I live a hurried life at times. We all do, I think, perhaps. Some of us are, are better at others than others. We have to confront our impatience and how quickly we get bored. Henry Nowen calls, well, he once called prayer wasting time on God. Not that it's a waste of time, but that prayer is just, that's what it is, just wasting time on God. And what he means is that in our productivity-obsessed culture, where time is money and money is God, where entertainment, stimulation, fill every crevice of our time, to give God your time and loving attention for him to do or not to do with what it, as he pleases, is kind of wasteful in the eyes of the world. It seems unproductive. There is no point to it. Like Mother Teresa said, I speak to God and he doesn't say anything. <laughs> he, of course, speaks to us, but often we, he doesn't say anything. It's silence. He listens. It feels unproductive. Why would we do that when we've got a million things to do? But we all perhaps know the story in the Gospels where Jesus gets anointed with this expensive perfume by Mary as an act of love and worship. And it's the only fitting response anyone can have to who Jesus is and his beauty. Because again, the main thing we get out of prayer isn't different life outcomes. It's God himself. It's God himself. And the third thing that trips us up alongside distraction and hurry is fear. Whatever is down in us will come to the surface whether that's a desire for God, whether it's a lack of that desire for God, whether it's love, hate, anger, anxiety, insecurity, envy, jealousy, hurt, regret, etc. All the inner turmoil and tension that we do carry in our bodies will come up in the quiet. Perhaps it's why we do avoid it at times. It's very understandable. Yet as we begin to pray contemplatively, we begin more and more to become aware of how we've just been using the distraction and the hurry and the noise and the work and the people and the food and the shopping and as John Mark Homer calls it, a thousand cultural narcotics that we use to run away from our pain. There's pain in all of us. There's tension in all of us. And it's likely leaking out in all sorts of unhealthy ways. And yet the invitation is that in quiet prayer we create space for it to come up in a healthy way. Not to avoid, it's not another avoidance technique. It's allowing whatever is in there to come up in a healthy way and offer it to God, the one who we believe can heal it, can make it whole. It's scary. It is scary. But if you stay with a contemplative prayer long enough, you will move through the inner turmoil to this place of surrender, of freedom of inner peace. And I don't know about you, but all those words keep coming up on Instagram Reels when you scroll it because everybody's looking for surrender and freedom and peace. And in our faith, there is an invitation, there is the resources for us to live whole if we live the way of Jesus, if we can practice being with him and sitting with him. All this is to say that in light of these changes and there are in light of these challenges, sorry, and there will be more, you will quickly realize that the pray contemplatively 
you have to adopt a contemplative lifestyle. Put it another way, to be with Jesus in this way means that we do have to slow down to a more prayerful pace. It's not something we can squeeze in. It is something that should shape the pace of our lives. I once read something, I can't remember where, it was a book that was talking about this kind of subject, and it said that the wor- what the world needs is more slowed down people. And I think it is part of the calling of, of us as followers of Jesus to slow down to the pace that God wants to move so that we're paying attention to what's actually happening subterraneanly, what's actually happening below the surface because there's always stuff happening if we can tune into it and we need to move at a slower pace to do so. As a general rule, how you are outside of prayer is how you will be inside of prayer. So if you're stressed and hurried and distracted like we can often be by these things and all the rest, and life is real and we've got to deal with our lives, we've got to live them, but ultimately, we do have to make choices on how we're going to live. And if this is what's dictating the, way, the pace of our lives, it will bleed into all of our time. We must slow down to what the Japanese theologian Koyama calls the speed of love. There's definitely a song written with that title, isn't there, surely? Speed of love. One way to think about discipleship to Jesus in the modern era is about slowing your life down to pray. It's about arranging, or for most of us, rearranging our lives with God. And historically, there's been saints of old that have tried to figure out how we might do this. How can we cultivate a daily prayer rhythm? In the Hebrew tradition, Jesus himself would have gone by. There would have been a lot of stopping three times a day, morning, noon, and night, Surely that's not achievable for us, perhaps not. You can see throughout the Psalms and famously with Daniel in the Lion's Den, prayer and Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit happened during morning prayer, as did several other inflection points in Acts through, with the story of the, the first Christians. St. Benedict and the monastics upped the rhythm from three to six times a day, which you might get if you go and spend some time in a, a monastery. You'll be called to worship six times a day. I've done it. It's, it's not sustainable in the lives that we live. <laughs> but it is absolutely beautiful and challenging and I would recommend it. The Book of Common Prayer then tried to take that and make it simpler by having morning and evening prayer. That's making it more accessible for those of us who don't feel called to, to the monastery But the idea is the same, that to pray all of the time, to be kind of like a prayer for people all of the time, we kind of need to pray some of the time. To practice the presence of God all day, we need to pause at certain intervals throughout the day, even for a few minutes, to come back to our home in God. If we're going to be the kind of people where prayer pervades us, where the presence of God pervades us throughout the day, it's going to be sustained because we just take a moment to stop throughout the day to sustain sustain that, to have a short time of prayer to engage with the Lord. In the same way, the end goal of a daily prayer rhythm is what Paul calls praying without ceasing, or what A.W. Tozer calls constant conscious communion, or what Madame Guyon called a continuous inner abiding, to live as Jesus did, saturated in the loving light of the Trinitarian presence, looking at God, looking at you, in love. Did I say that earlier? That's essentially what it means to look at God. 
to look at God as he looks at you in love, that is contemplative prayer, to rest in that love. What a beautiful thing. Can you imagine a more compelling, beautiful life? And if you ache for that kind of life, then I really encourage us all to try to begin to start where we are, to begin slowly, to begin humbly by being with God. Come to the end of our time with being with God, but I kind of wanted to just talk about someone who I believe kind of pointed the way for me in this, and that's my, my papa, my grandfather, who I talked about two weeks ago, and on Monday passed, he passed away to be with Jesus. No distractions, no hurry, no fear. He's now fully in the presence of his Lord and Savior. I just want to talk about him for five minutes. Can you go with me with that? Can, I can do that. I've got the mic, I guess. The one thing that was true about my papa was that he was a man deep in communion with God. He was the quietest person in the room, a man of few words. Yeah, we can put a photo up of him, I think. Yeah, there he is. And his faith was everything to him. If you traveled, I think, a mile up the road, you might come across a little church called the Welcome Hall. Does anyone know of the Welcome Hall? It's now called Welcome Evangelical Church. It's where my papa became a Christian. It's actually a church, it's a wee hall, and it was actually famously founded by Amy Carmichael. You heard of Amy Carmichael, the famous Christian missionary to India? Well, if you drive a mile up this road, even after church, to Cambria Street in the Woodville area, you will come across a very humble little hall called the Welcome Hall. And there's a book written about it, because for something like, in today's money, 68,000 pounds, Amy and her family bought a tin hut on that site. And there's a book called Amy's Tin Tabernacle. And in that book is my papa's testimony. And I'll read a little snippet from you. On 22nd of August, 1951, I attended the Wednesday night gospel meeting in the Welcome Mission Hall. I was led to saving faith in Jesus Christ that night. I did not have a great emotional feeling, nor did I see any flashes of lightning. That night I received a great saviour, a great salvation. And since then I have known a great peace in my heart and I'm living with a great prospect. I kind of just wanted to share that because I want to honor his life and his funerals on Tuesday and I'll be given the tribute at his funeral. As I met with family yesterday, some stories came up of my papa, um, a man who I can really describe as a man of prayer, a faithful man of prayer, a quiet man, a behind-the-scenes kind of person, but the kind of person that has the, that the radiant glow on their face of someone who's probably been with Jesus. And what I found out was that every night after dinner, after working, I think, from 5 a.m. until 6 p.m. for the Ormo Bakery, driving an electric van, serving bread around the city here, he would come in and have his dinner with my mom and her sister. And after dinner, every night, he would say, I'm just going upstairs for a prayer. And he had a room, a little box room, they call it. And he would spend an hour in that room. And he would reappear at like half eight 
say, it's time for supper, put on the kettle, you know, put the toast on, and maybe watch a little bit of TV or something. But for an hour after dinner every night, he, he spent time in that room. And it really annoyed my mum because she was sharing a room with her sister, my auntie, and she wanted that room as her bedroom. And it was always, a, no, that's the prayer room. They only had three bedrooms. And what, the box room was just totally given to be in a little prayer room. And I remember it. I played darts in it with my papa. It always had missionaries' faces up on the wall and his board. It had a little chair, a bookshelf with all the different Bibles. I was in it. Well, yeah, I mean. So there was a, there was a room in his house, and it was a very you know, a small semi-detached house in, in Lindhurst up the Bally Martin Road. You'll know it. So mum didn't get the room. And he went up every night after dinner. He's the kind of person that would always pray with you before you went out. You know, journeying mercies, if you've heard that phrase, when you drive. <laughs> the one thing I remember is he always, when he's saying thanks for his grace every night, he would always say and remember the needs of others as part of his prayer. Every time as our family, we went to, we were in his presence for whatever reason. He would barely say a thing throughout the whole day. And at the very end, he'd be the one to stand and just pray a blessing over us. He had the same blessing that he prayed. And he prayed it over me when I visited his bedside recently. With his oxygen mask, he took it off and he still knew it, even though he has no sight, barely any hearing. He prayed that same blessing over me. The man of prayer. Some of you in this room will know people like that in your life if you've been so blessed. I'm not really interested in people with platforms. It's not people with platforms and spotlights that have shown me Jesus. It's, it's my papa, people like that. And you will know those kinds of people who are faithful and who just know Jesus. And it was all about just being with Jesus, with my granddad. It was never about sin or anything else. It was about Jesus and how wonderful he was. And in his own way, he lived a faithful life. I just love the testimony of people like that and you'll have people in your lives like that. It's the kind of person I think I want to be. A person that is so rooted in who they are because they've spent time with Jesus that you're just, you have a radiance about you and I just hope that I can be half the person of prayer. I hope that we as a community can, by the grace of God, learn how to be with Jesus. Forget the nonsense of what's going on in Christendom and the nonsense of the platforms and the leaders that disappoint you. Look to Jesus. Look at Jesus. Because he's worth it. Let's stand. Father, I just thank you today for the opportunity to share, for the time to be together as brothers and sisters to worship and to come to this table behind me, the table that represents more than any other meal that we could come to. It represents an invitation to communion with Christ. I just pray as John, Rosie, Matt and the band lead us, Lord, as we come to take the elements behind, that by your spirit you would touch us that you would give us what we need, you would encourage us, that you would cast out fear. And Lord, that we would experience a taste of communion with you, that by your spirit you'd help us
to take that into our lives and be a people marked as people who spend time in the presence of Jesus and are like Jesus. I pray this in your name. Amen.